Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And um, perhaps you saw my Twitter post, my tweet about this, but I've got some updates to share with folks um, now that things are really real. Um, I am going to graduate school next year. So, so uh, proud of you. So, so like, yeah, so it's really, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful, um, for the folks that have supported me, including Anna, um, and listeners. Oh, I wrote a great recommendation. (laughs) Yeah. So I have thanked, I have formally thanked all of my letter writers. Um, (laughs) Anna declined receiving an email from me to that effect, but, um, no, so I've been, I'm, I'm really lucky that I've got a ton of support from folks around me, folks in my past, folks in my present, um, and folks in your future, folks in my future too. It's true. Um, which is rapidly becoming my present. So um, in the fall of 2024, I will be joining the um, University of Pennsylvania's uh, History and Sociology of Science Department, um, where I'm going to focus on um, the, the history of archaeological inquiry done by U.S. institutions in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and... Um, and more generally look at the intersections of science and empire in the 20th century. Uh, and so I, you're so cool. Uh, thanks. Um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited and I'm extremely grateful to, um, the Dean, uh, to the university, <laughs> so to my department and also the wider administration at the university for supporting me and deferring, um, because of some of the other things that have been going on. Um, I still, I don't talk a lot about my, my day job, um, until recently was very irrelevant to the kind of work that I do here. Um, but until I go back to school next year, I am um, part of a um, consulting project uh, on um, heritage, uh, like the heritage sector in Saudi Arabia. And um, relevance. So very relevant. Yeah. So it's very exciting um, to have something that um, kind of popped up. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, the the it didn't exist it's it's a new project it's a new initiative for a new commission and like all this stuff is extremely new and my organization uh got it won it um mm-hmm. and um i this posting came up for an analyst position with it and i and applied like, and uh, i i knew i knew the director of middle east programs and he was like how did this never come up that you have like a like a degree and a half in this and i'm just like it uh wasn't relevant to me making name badges so uh, um so i'm very very glad that that this job will better use your intellect instead well, of just your but, excel skills but also oh god yeah uh <laughs> What we're doing right here also uses my Excel skills uh, more than I wish it would. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm really excited to be doing stuff that is, um, that will help me in my future research, my specific mm-hmm. research, um, because I am um, really hopeful that this will be the start of um, several great 
um, professional relationships with folks who are based in the, um, yeah. based in the Arabian Peninsula because a big part of the work that I have, um, pitched, um, and that's hmm. being, uh, met positively is that, um, I, don't want this to just be a study of people going into someone else's house. Um, I <laughs> want it to be sort of, um, um, I, I want to consider, um, these, these sort of Arab states, like the states in the Arabian Peninsula as interlocutors, both the state actors and non-state actors. And so, um, it's really important to me that I consider, um, when I think about outreach, I'm not the only thinking about, um, this kind of work that we're doing here. Um, but yeah, also but thinking about, too. yeah, also thinking about folks who, um, have sort of equal, if not greater stake in, um, sort of thinking about the history of this discipline. Um, so I am, and, and the question that's like been the foundation of, of, the way you think for a really long time, which is who is this for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, figuring out who is this for, how did we get here? Like that's, Mm -hmm. um, a big question for me. And, um, also, um, a paper that I, uh, an abstract that I submitted has been uh, sort of looking at this and also talking about my, my best, my special boy, uh, Wendell Phillips (laughs) and his work. Um, (laughs) Our favorite dingbat. <laughs> um, so that's been accepted to the seminar for Arabian studies. And so I'm like, Woo-hoo! I'm back in a big way in the field. And it's very scary. Um, as uh, longtime listeners could probably guess that there's a lot of, um, I'm going to be re-entering a lot of conversations and spaces um, and uh, networks that I did not leave on the best terms um, and becoming back at a very different person than I was. And so I'm excited to meet this new person um, and <laughs> see how they're different from uh, the person that I was and um, and see what's what's the through line here. So, yeah, a lot yeah, of really exciting stuff. Um, really, really grateful for everybody's patience. <laughs> Like these yeah. past few months, as I have, um, well, hopefully now that the the pay, you've you've said what the payoff was, like hopefully now people can understand like <laughs> how much you had going on, yeah, and, and so how stressful it was. There was and there was a bit of a little bit of travel in there, uh, a little bit of moving, uh, interstate move uh, while having fluvid, um, Oof, and and yep. so just um, a lot going on, um. I was given a verbal offer for this job the same day I got an invitation to for an interview at Penn, which was also the same day that I was notified that my credit application for my apartment cleared. Um, <laughs> and this was, and I would, all of this was happening. Trick. All of this was happening while I was in the archives of the American Philosophical Society working on materials to include in that abstract for the seminar. <laughs> and so um to say that my hey, it all worked out. My uh sort of uh uh sort of load the load on my mind <laughs> um, and emotions has been quite st- heavy uh lately. Um it's I'm now dealing with something very new which is um sort of grappling with what this means for my identity and how I view myself because I've mm-hmm. always seen myself as an underdog 
uh, for want of a better term, or somebody or one of, I, I never thought that I would be successful in this. And I thought that I would die trying kind of thing. And so to have some things bear fruits. You're having a paradigm shift. Yeah. And it, yeah, because yeah, it is causing me to think differently about myself. Um, which is, but good. It, which is good great. Way. Which is great. And You're so, winning. um, it, 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 but it's sort of, it's making me realize things that I didn't realize that I never thought it would happen until it did happen. Hmm. And the, hmm. like the disbelief that I felt. Um, mm. so it's, it's been a, it's, it's been, uh, it's been really challenging, but, um, in, and, and hard, but hard in the way that like rehabilitation feels. Um, you know, yeah. like if you, if you injure yourself and you have to do like physical therapy or like stretching and those sorts of things, like it hurts. Um, but oh, it, oh, I know. Yeah. But it, but it is, um, but it is something that is part of healing. It's not the sort of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's something that like, no, this that's... is like just genuinely healing. Yeah. So I'm just so, so, so grateful and I'm excited and I'm terrified and I, um, am really proud of myself and, and I'm really proud of you. you. Yeah. You worked and, so hard. <laughs> oh God, I have. Um, and so I know, um, yeah, I've been here. You sure have. It's true. You have been here the whole time. Um, no. and so, yeah, so that's something that is not, it absolutely does not mean the end of the show um, nope. because um, this is something that folks like <laughs> nothing about else me. because now you have institutional access so we can get those articles. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you think that I have Thanks for getting into long, grad school for that. <laughs> yeah. You, you think there's long bibliographies on some of these things now, just you wait. Guess what? Um, but, um, yeah, but it is something that I can now say with full throated confidence that this show has made a huge difference in each of our respective careers. Um, True. Something that we, <laughs> when we started the show, we, neither of us really had a career to speak of. Um, nope. we were, I certainly um, didn't think it would go in the direction that it has for me. We were somewhere between unemployed and unemployable and, mm. um, well, that's, <laughs> that's a little harsh, <laughs> but it really has like, it truly has opened doors. And, um, and so I'm really thrilled with, um, the direction that, that we've gone and that we're going. And I have learned so much from the work that we've done here. I've learned so much from our listeners, learned, like learned yeah. so, so much from our guests and, um, it's from just the conferences we've done. Exactly. Or, yeah, so like, it's, you know, it's really nice to have a moment where something goes right, where you can step back and see the things that were going right all along. Um, and, and I hope that everyone listening has moments like that. Um, yes. Of just I wish that for all of you yeah. as well. Um, because it's, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't happen suddenly for me. Like this has been a, a year, years of work of, of yeah. figuring out, uh, like work and healing and recovery and all sorts of things because um, as is the case too frequently um, when it comes to things like um, 
leaving academia or re-entering it. Like it's something that is so much more than just the thing that you do um, yeah, to get a fraught. paycheck. Like it's it's yeah. something that that factors into the your relationship with yourself, with your family, with partners, with friends. Uh, with your future, with your past, and like into ideologies and things like that. And so it's just something that can consume all parts of you. And so when it doesn't go right, it can feel like nothing is right. Um, and so I'm I'm sort of at this point where I'm like, it is going right, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fall into the inverse of that. And so I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so you could, yeah, so I'm really like... I'm really out there. People like people in my life are saying like, Oh, like 2023 is, is your year. And I'm just like, well, 2023 is less, not my year than 2022 was. And so like, that's, it's a start. Um, but yeah, so things have been, have been cooking for me. Mm. Ah, cooking indeed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because I think everyone can hear that wink. <laughs> Is on fire. And look at that belabored <laughs> transition into our topic today. Gosh. We're going to be talking about fire in the archaeological record. Fire and the things humans do with fire could take up several episodes. So this is going to be sort of a fire 101. I'm going to be a journalist about this. So first we're going to talk about when fire okay. and then why fire and then how fire uh, the who and what will sort of be incidental to that. We're also going to talk about how archaeologists look for evidence of fire, how find fire in the archaeological record, uh, where especially of <laughs> where fire in the deep past. Um, so first, let's start with when fire and also where fire. Yeah. So when in human history did we start using fire? And would you believe it? This is a topic about which archaeologists disagree. Archaeologists disagree with each other mm. and possibly also themselves internally. Mm. Um, mm. Couldn't be us. Um, would you call it a uh, heated debate? I would. Mm. I would. would. You would. I would. And I did because I wrote that. Yeah, you did. Uh, and <laughs> I'm also going to clarify something right up front. There is a big difference between saying that people used or controlled fire and saying that people made fire. So all of these are different. Like, um, like that X-Man? Sure. It's not Magneto. It's the only one. Great. Okay. Cyclops? I found someone who doesn't. Wolverine. Okay. Nope. 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 I re nope. There's a big difference between saying that people used or controlled fire and saying that people made fire. So I will elaborate on that in a moment, but I wanted to flag that up top because I'm going to be very careful with that particular distinction because okay. it it's, makes a big difference in terms of what behaviors and and things are going on and then the next so, section says one meow <laughs> so <laughs> a million years ago um, oh okay <laughs> as i said there's plenty of disagreement about the earliest evidence for the deliberate use and control of so fire. use and use control same control. same like those are they are not the same oh. they're not the same but they are adjacent i'll explain i promise okay. Some of the earliest evidence for hominin fire use that I'm aware of comes from what is today Israel. The site of Gesher Benet Yaakov, or the Daughters of Jacob Bridge, or as I will continue to pronounce it, Gesher Benet Yaakov. 
archaeologists of the Hebrew University since the 30s. Wow. The 1930s CE. So here's an excerpt from the site project page describing the location. So get your mind theaters ready, everyone. Okay. Quote, The site is located in the Dead Sea Rift, a segment of the African Great Rift system. What? South of the... I know. Isn't that cool? The same East African Rift that has like the Olduvai Gorge and all of that continues under the ocean. Under the Red Sea? Is it the Red Red Sea? sea. Is is there a rift underwater? Mm -hmm. Are there hominids in the water? I don't know. But there could be, right? Because it's that old. I don't know. I do not know. I don't know because I don't know if that's ever been um, not underwater. I have a question about, okay, great. Okay, so you might not know the answer to this, but this rift, I, so the rift, so the, the rifts mm-hmm. is like Olduvai Gorge and stuff like that. This isn't where I thought is, we would be going. Is the like the rifting, the, uh-huh. the reaving of it, is that what? It's, it's ongoing, yes. But is that what has exposed these fossils or did people happen to be there while it was mid reaving like is it coincidental like does it have anything to do with it or the is the fact that that it's not unrelated so like the rift yes in some cases has exposed some fossils but also it has to do with things like um the level of lake turkana went down and so things sediments on the the shore that had been underwater um, were exposed and uh, hominin remains are found there. So like, okay. So it's not, a lot of stuff it's, going on. it's so I think I've always implicitly thought of this as something where um, this is like human, like hominin occupation mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. a like geologic scale time scale. Like it's so old that like, rocks have cleaved like tectonic plates have like moved apart during the that time. rift was there okay so the i because it's something that there. it is geologically as someone who just yes. thought that was one meh um like obviously i don't <laughs> don't deal one well million with years things ago. like no, this no 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 um yeah so, okay so it's we not are going into deep time it's here. not as though it opens up it's and not as though it, are hominin fossils it's they were they were there because of um because they died and then the the rift was already there and they died in the rift right valley (laughs) but the rift had other stuff going on like you know like lake lakes and things like that that would make Mm -hmm. it okay thank you for clearing up something that i probably was told almost 20 years ago (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean and i'm not but entirely sure. like i i'm not an expert on the geology of the the rift like valley and basin and all of that i but that's we've reached the edges of my understanding okay, okay. are you googling yep. okay but i'd also like to tell you about the site of gesher benet yakov you yell at me when i, I know isn't it terrible um <laughs> I'm going to reach through the screen and smack you. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> um, <laughs> it goes through the Red Sea. Great. Thanks. I will be reading this later um, as I eat Great. dinner and I will tell you. Oh, good. Anna. I look forward to 47 different texts. Don't you love from... that? Do you actually not I do. like that? I do. I'm just like, hey, I learned, some... I learned something else. Here's my dog. I learned no, something I else. Really Here's like what it. I'm eating. Just... <laughs> Here's... <laughs> 
No, I, I like the play-by-play. I it's live just alone. That sometimes, <laughs> it's just that sometimes I, you know, like have my hands covered in dinner that's that I'm okay. making or like, okay, that's all. Great. Well, I'm sure the listeners wanted to hear all of that. Here we go. We haven't even gotten to the cool part yet. I, I would argue we have. We haven't gotten to other cool the, parts yet. The, the uh, germane cool part. Yeah. So it is located in the Dead Sea Rift, which is a segment of the African Great Rift system, which goes through the Red Sea and continues up into the Levant. Uh, the site itself is south of the Hula Valley and stretches along three and a half kilometers of the bed and both banks of the River Jordan. So a lot of this material was underwater. So excavations revealed a series of waterlogged, tectonically tilted layers. So Amber, uh, scroll down to the next page of the script. Take a look at the next page of the script, and you can see excavations happening. So what you are seeing... What you are seeing was once a flat living floor that it's now tilted at, I don't know, like a 30 degree angle. Definitely slanty in a way that at the time when those artifacts were being deposited, it was not. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we were, um, if these folks were kneeling on the hour hand of the clock, it would be about uh, 10 till three. 10. Yeah. Mm hmm. So the the fieldwork exposed deposits that document a series of paleoclimatic fluctuations extending over 100,000 years and dating to the lower and middle Pleistocene around 790,000 years ago. Oh, God. So Gesher Bennett Yaakov, exceptionally old site. And because these layers were waterlogged, because they were once um, the the Hula Valley uh, was a lake. It was a a paleo lake. And then at some point in the past several decades, I don't know when, it was drained for agriculture. So now the area is is agricultural. It's wetlands. Okay. So Mm -hmm. until very recently, lake. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was was on the lake shore or what would have been the lake shore 800,000 years ago-ish. So those waterlogged layers meant really great preservation of things like botanical remains, and that includes charred wood and other material from at least six different taxa of plants, three of which also produce edible components. Charred, you say? Barley. Like burned, not Swiss chard. Yes. Charred in a fire. Yes, they were burned. I'm trying to express that I'm on board with the topic. Great. (laughs) Uh, the things that were charred included olive, barley, and wild grape materials. I don't know about eating wild, uh, raw olives, though. Um, maybe but they were charred if you cook them, or it renders out the oil. I don't know. Um, they were roasted. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Patches of these burned botanical remains and also heat-altered, like burned little chips of flint, suggest that fires happened in specific locations. So these things weren't burned in a wildfire unless that wildfire was like sentient and hopping around going got you got you like Um, a tornado so control of fire versus use of fire versus making fire right right? okay um so use of fire is well control and use of fire both are related to naturally occurring fire so fires from lightning strikes okay use of fire just means that not even necessarily that you 
bring some of that you harvest like a smoldering right. embers and bring it back it's just that if a fire has gone through chances are it's cooked some of the available fruits and vegetables and maybe even animals um so you can benefit from a fire having been on the landscape recently and i would call that use of fire but not control of fire so use use of fire doesn't even have to involve the it's just flames taking advantage itself. of the fact yeah, so it, it could just, be like the happened. things that grow the things that grow after a wildfire mm-hmm. grows th- goes through you see mm-hmm. a fire like oh great in two weeks like those shoots are going to be great tasty. yeah yeah so mm-hmm. that can is considered use of fire i would consider okay. it use of fire because it involves transmitted knowledge knowledge of of like of what happens after okay. a fire fire yeah. and its consequences mm-hmm. yeah and so control of fire i would argue is bringing fire to you in some in some way not making fire but but harvesting fire uber something like what like an uber like bringing what? fire to you yeah go puff right. of smoke None of these companies are sponsoring us. I don't. I I mean, if they were, they wouldn't be now. Um, okay, so that's so control of fire isn't putting it out. It's no, no, no. That's not what I mean by control of fire. It is um, maintenance of fire, if you like. And so it's bringing it back, but also once you have fire, once you are in a place where you are staying for however long, um, it is curating that fire so that it doesn't go away so you can keep using it so like banking the coals overnight or you know making sure that you have a supply of fuel for the fire and like keeping it Um, fed and keeping it going yeah 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 Mm -hmm. you know like oxygen added to it and stuff yeah so because that involves input from you i would call that control of fire and humans aren't the only animals that use fire strategically we've talked about those uh, Australian falcons that uh, take advantage of wildfires and and uh, drop flaming sticks farther farther into uh, you know brush areas to chase out critters that they then swoop down on. It's wild, um, but we are specifically talking about the relationship between humans and fire here. So say that for our that falcon fire... podcast. So let's talk about just very briefly the kinds of things that fire contributes to human lives. We've got it's warm. It provides light. You know, if your day is day of activity is bounded by your ability to see, um, you can do things thanks to firelight that you couldn't do if you didn't have fire. And you can do things in um, more extreme latitudes than you could. Yes. Mm hmm. Um, and kind of adjacent to that is protection. Um, fire is not something that most animals go towards. Fire is also a tool. Uh, it can be used as a way to process materials. So think about the Neanderthal um, adhesive that was boiled out of birch yeah. uh, resin. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. And it it's a major um, factor in social aspects but it's also of, like cooking we'll get there but cooking fall it goes under tool right yeah okay cooking yeah and i would argue and the social component yeah. if you've been to my house from the boy is it a classic 
Lewis Binford's Willow Smoke and Dog's Tales, which uh, talks about distribution of artifacts around a hearth. So like he ethnographically observed Arctic groups uh, eating around a fire and then tossing things over their shoulders. And managed Um, to make it data points. Just just like this is just signatures of human behavior. He was a processualist. He, he, yeah. Yeah. Or to, you know, we've more recently in our Neanderthals at Home episode, we talked about the the organization of space at Tor Farage. Fire is one way that interior spaces are partitioned out. You get to be around the fire or maybe you don't. So here's a quote mm. from the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Anthropology on fire use. Quote, the social organization of a campsite can sometimes be interpreted from the artifact types found around a fire or in how different fires were placed. For example, access to household fires was likely restricted to certain family members, whereas communal fires allowed access for all group members. There would have been conventions governing the activities that were allowed by a household fire or a communal fire and the placement of different fire types. Furthermore, the social uses of fire included ritual and ceremonial uses such as cleansing rituals or cremation. End quote. So like this fire's for cooking, stop whittling your sticks here, kind of something like, like that. Yeah. Just, um, yeah. Like or like or even just like this is my sleep fire. Go make your own. Okay. You know? Yeah. So if we see fire in the archaeological record, can we say that all of these things are happening? No, of course not. It depends on the context and all the other evidence from the site. But these things are among the possible uses of fire that we can think about when we think about people using fire in the past. Cool. Um, And so now we're going to play one of my favorite games. Can we go earlier? Uh, Which is both my approach to the grocery store and leaving bars <laughs> um, but no in this context it's eight thirty. i really gotta <laughs> yeah <laughs> and likewise with the grocery store i'm like well it opens at this time <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. let's get there before others <laughs> so um is there evidence for hominins using fire prior to thousand years ago? I'm not good at deep time. It's a big number. It's a very it's big, a big number. number. <laughs> um, there is. And um, at, it's been recognized, at least in part, thanks to your friend and mine, AI. Um, so the robots are indeed coming for all of our jobs, Anna. Mm-hmm. Um, but... We're okay until they start an archaeology podcast, which I think like chat GBT could. Um, yeah, and frankly, it might be better. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. No. And also most AI is just people who aren't paid well. Um, but um, enough of that. That's someone else's show. Uh, this research this with AI is taking place at a site right next to uh, Gesher Benet-Yakov. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that... Um, it's at Gesher Bar Yakov. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's this just is sort of nearby Evron Quarry. So this site is uh-huh. open air, not underwater. So the the now or before, all right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, so it was an open air site, and it remains not an open air site. <laughs> um, so the traces of burning were harder to find, and that's where the AI comes in. 
So this is quoting from a Smithsonian write-up. The researchers heated pieces of flint to different temperatures and then analyzed them using spectroscopy, a technique that measures the absorption of light in an attempt to determine whether the flint had been burned. End quote. What? Pause. Um, If you heat flint to hot enough temperatures, it undergoes molecular changes. And so we wouldn't do that to him because we like him. Oh, Flint's great, but I'm talking about the rock, not Dwayne Johnson. I'm talking about the material out of which he makes stone tools. Um, Yeah. So if you, you know, if you heat it high enough, it um, undergoes molecular changes that can then be detected by spectroscopy. Okay. All right. Resuming quote. Mm-hmm. However, the resulting data was too complex to be of much use. I feel like that's how people have described me in the past. Oh. So me, me and well, big dating. Oh. <laughs> hmm. uh, uh, Felipe Natalio, an archaeological biochemist at the Weizmann Institute, said, quote, subquote, the changes were so subtle that we couldn't rely on them. That's when we turned to artificial intelligence. Help us, robot. In his quote. Um, the site was first discovered in the 1970s. At that time, archaeologists found animal fossils and paleolithic tools dating to between 800,000 and 1 million years ago, according to the Times of Israel, uh, which is a newspaper. Um, yeah, not just according to how Israel itself measures time. Uh, <laughs> none of them showed visible signs of being exposed to fire. But when the team tested their AI program on 26 flint tools previously discovered at the site, they found that they had been exposed to hot temperatures, some reaching as high as 600 degrees Celsius. They also analyzed the tusk of an extinct elephant from the site, which yielded similar results. End quote. So. Yeah. So there was fire at the site. Great. And the team's findings Mm -hmm. support the cooking hypothesis, uh, which is the widely accepted belief that harnessing fire was a crucial step in human evolution. Again, what? Okay. So as a a, a little little primer, I've recommended this book several times before, but Richard Rangham's... (laughs) <laughs> but Richard Rangham's Catching Fire is is a good start, good place to start. Um, it may be a little out of date by now because I think it came out in 2007, 2009, something like that. Um, but Rangham is a big proponent of this co- cooking hypothesis. And so to break that down, it means one, cooking food is one way to get more caloric bang for your buck, although it does destroy some nutrients, notably vitamin C. Fermentation, which is also a way to get more nutrients out of your food, does not destroy vitamin C. So it makes it more nutritious. Both of these make it more nutritious rather than keep it from getting less nutritious through. It's not that it's making it more nutritious. It is making it so that it costs your body less energy to break it down and get calories from it. Okay. So it's it's reducing the cost and therefore increasing the value processed to it's like starting to be broken down Mm -hmm. so that our bodies don't have to do that Mm -hmm. it's sort of pre-digested a little bit both cooking and fermentation do this do you have like eight thousand more questions no i'm just kind of disappointed in myself for asking that question now and not when we've talked about these topics before (laughs) 
<laughs> I have said this before. No, it's it's just, come up. I I think it's mm-hmm. just um yeah, it's just something that is 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 something that I've never given much thought to and so it's very strange to get my for head you, I spent like six years giving a <laughs> lot of thought I know to you it. Did, so yeah. I will I Yeah. I so it's got just this. um yeah, I don't think I had I don't think I had thought about that like what it means to make something more accessible, like make nutrients more to accessible. Body, yeah. Like what mm-hmm. like the mechanics of that is. And it is because some of the things are pre-digested, as you said. Yeah, exactly. So so the best example is is protein. So a protein molecule looks like a Gordian knot, like it's a big clumpy squiggle. But then when you start to heat that, that squiggle starts to break down into a much more friendly shape just like a and, kind of a slightly wiggly noodle and that's and, like the logic behind having very high fevers being bad you're for breaking, one's brain yep. yeah and cooking your brain okay and that's what cooking yeah, is which you don't want mm-hmm. so yeah when that happens to proteins it's called denaturing yeah and yeah fermentation will also denature proteins okay um okay thank you so don't ferment your brain either Overall, eating cooked food means a nutritionally higher quality diet. And when I say higher quality, I'm not talking about like the taste of it or the source of the ingredients. I'm talking about the amount of time you spend eating relative right. to the amount of nutrition you are getting. So like a gorilla. Time I spend eating or time I spend digesting? Cons- consuming both. and digesting. Yeah. So a gorilla eats a very low quality diet because they okay. eat leaves and vegetation and they eat it all day. They spend most of their time eating. We don't have to do that because we eat more sort of calorically and nu- nutritionally dense got soylent. food. Yeah. Got to give these gorillas soylent. I don't think we need to do that. Imagine what they'd accomplish. They're having a hard enough time, time disrupting the as gorillas. <laughs> There's no gorilla industry. Come on. Leave gorillas alone. They just want to eat their leaves. <laughs> Um, so around 600,000 years ago in the hominin fossil record, we see these big repeated jumps in cranial capacity. Like as you move from Australopithecus to the genus Homo, so you get Homo erectus, you get Homo habilis. I said those in the wrong order. I knew that. (laughs) Good job. That's just, I'm just so proud of myself. (laughs) Each of those species, like as we see each of these species evolving, they have larger and larger crania. And if you have bigger skulls, do they get larger over the course? Of, this is something else that I learned mm. recently from you, of of having um, like there are changes within mm-hmm. the, a, a species existence. Yes. Are they getting larger? It's not as low. It's like this is the new. Yeah, it's not just like new new model. New model. It's got a bigger trunk. No, um, this is yes incremental. It's over the course of so it, like an archaic. Homo habilis would have a smaller. There's a skull lot of factors, later. but but okay. I, I generally, guess, yeah, also yes, it's like different. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So so if you have a bigger skull, it means they were filled with bigger brains, and brains are the, yeah. as you and I both know, to our detriment. Brains are the most costly uh, tissue in our body. They sure, they sure they are. They use a lot, and I mean, <laughs> I was joking, but like also. They use a lot of energy. About 20% yeah. of your total daily energy consumption is just brain, brain thinking. Just keeping that, keeping, keeping that electric meatball sparking. going. And 
you could also uh, go with the statistic that brain tissue uses 22% more energy than an equivalent amount of muscle tissue. What a meaningless. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, that you see this do clump of leg me. meat? Like when people say that, like, if you like unfolded this, it would go to the moon and back. And I'm like, what? Okay, Just say cool. it's big. Like, Just say it's big. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> coinciding with this growth in brain size comes the reduction of molar size. Eating a softer diet, you know, when you cook food, it becomes softer. Um, probably wasn't yeah. the only reason for this but it does coincide with it. So related. So, cause we didn't have as much room for No, molars? we didn't have to chew our food as much or constantly. I'm just thinking about the brains getting, those bigger. are two separate things happening. Like it's just, they're just, okay. I, then I have a small, small quibble with that sentence. You wrote. Yeah. I was very caffeinated. I know. I know. But okay. So it's, so it isn't as though, we had to maximize the real estate in our skulls so we would fit through pelvises. It was so like when at birth, it wasn't that nope. sort of like, what can we, what can we, the designers here? Um, like it had nothing, it had nothing to, to do. do with no. That. And in fact, um, the human cranium and birth canal are not always compatible. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't sure no, if it nothing was to do with that. Like who makes it through are the ones that have, Wow, this is so interesting. Yeah. This is like, I'm glad. Yeah. This, well, I, mean, I didn't think that you'd like. You didn't think we'd get here? Your PhD was on something dull, but it was. Yeah. <laughs> like, this, but this it's, is only this a tiny is really, part of my PhD. I, I, yeah. I mean, um, you could read my article if you wanted, but I wouldn't. If you want to read a paper that talks about this, not mine, using a modeling phylogenetic and statistics approach, the link will be in the show notes, but just I read the abstract and it was exhausting. So I opted to not go into it. But just know that someone has done like a phylogenetic, so like a, a study of... Okay, what's that mean? A study... What's a, what are phylogenies? <laughs> it's um, family trees, basically. And it's a, a way of looking at um, correlations Using Bayesian statistics, which is a way to explain what what's that? You, let me just no, Bayesian just, statistics is a, is an analysis method that lets you determine the most likely reasons for a given outcome. So they took like cranium size and food type and amount of time needed to consume and process food, and they put it all through a math machine. This is why I didn't want to get into this paper. <laughs> it's a lot. This is incredible. Mm. My research is like this person got bad vibes from this guy. <laughs> like that's I try to when it's a when it's a topic that just mostly lives in my brain rent free, like I I try to use every everything I got. Okay. So, we've talked about using and controlling fire. So, depending on the frequency of fires happening in the places where hominins were living and evolving, it's possible that even without having fires where they lived, hominins did occasionally have access to cooked foods. They might have just found some cooked fruit and they might have decided that they really liked cooked food. There have been studies with primates, um, specifically gorillas and chimps, I think, where they presented the animals disrupting or they presented the animals with. Um, what I remember is sweet potato. So they would give them raw sweet potato. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. and in, in the wild, obviously, gorillas and chimps aren't cooking their food. They're not processing it in any way. Um, and so they just they are accustomed to raw fruits and, and 
tubers and whatever. Um, but then when presented with cooked sweet potato as an option, consistently gorillas and chimps both preferred the cooked sweet potato because it's softer, it's sweeter, it doesn't take as much time to eat. You don't have to chew for eight hours. And they they might have realized, not the chimps, the hominins, we're going back <laughs> to the hominins now, they might have realized that if they had a way to bring fire closer to their living space, they could have cooked food more often. And so that's controlling fire, right? That's seeing it as something that does a thing I like. I want to repeat that experience. I need to figure out how to do that so to the point of like seeing storm clouds being like oh and then like like keeping an eye out for lightning strikes and and sort of going and then either that or if a lightning strike happens and there's like a tree burning you'll see smoke coming up like you don't even have to know that there was lightning but you could see smoke coming up and go what's that yeah okay um Obviously, a lot of this is hypothetical. We don't know exactly what happened, but... We didn't do ethnographic research. Well, but... people tried. Yeah. Because there are groups that still make fire in traditional ways. Um, we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that by at least 800,000 years ago, possibly a million years ago, in what is today Israel... Yeah. Yeah. Pre-Homo sapiens people were using fire at home. So they were probably doing so quite a bit earlier in Africa, where we evolved. And there's evidence of that from around a million years ago. One mia. So it came it came with us. So with it our would seem. Or at least the knowledge did. I'm not saying that we were trundling out of Africa with little so fire pouches. Yeah. Fire. <laughs> no, please don't get take that away. That is not the takeaway, listeners. No, the knowledge of what to do with fire. Okay. Yeah. Oh God, us coming over the horizon. Olympic I... torch in hand. Oof. Little hmm. torches. Oof. Um, so that evidence comes from the site of Van der Verk Cave in southern Africa in what is today South Africa. It's a good bit. Um, research was led by Francesco Berna and Paul Goldberg. Who I hung out with a bunch at BU. <laughs> they were they were yeah, yeah they were like... at BU when I was in grad school and so I, I heard a lot okay. about this paper. Okay. Um, so uh, Berna and Goldberg's work centers on microstratigraphy. Oh, no. Uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. Taking small blocks of sections of an archaeological site and looking very, very closely at them to reconstruct the minute changes that happened in the actual sediments over time. Um, so that would be like each season? You could... You can see or single events like sometimes. Saturday yeah, night. Sometimes you can see single events. Oh, my yeah. God. Not always. Um, so um, quoting here from Smithsonian. No, you missed a line. <laughs> and what happened in Van der Verk Cave is that things were burned. Aren't you glad you didn't went back and didn't miss that line? <laughs> So this is from Smithsonian, quote, they found several signs of fire, including tiny charred bone fragments and ash from burned plants. They also found ironstone, which the hominids used to make tools with telltale fractures indicative of heating. Using a technique called Fourier Transform Infrared Microspectroscopy, which examines how a sample absorbs different wavelengths of infrared light, the team determined the remains had been heated to more than 900 degrees Fahrenheit with grasses, leaves, or brush as fuel, used as fuel. 
The shape of the bone fragments and the exceptional preservation of plant ash suggest the materials were burned in the cave, not outside and then transported by, transported by water, the team reported in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Spontaneous, spontaneous combustion of bat guano was also ruled out. Apparently, this sometimes happens in caves. Yeah, that was something I that learned left, today. <laughs> that left hominids as the most likely source of the fire. Yeah. And, um, so I've included... Well, now I have a new fear. Well, just don't hang out around too many bats. I've included a picture here of, of part of a figure from the Vunderwerk paper. Oh and what you are looking at is a... <laughs> I know, I know. It's a very small part of an archaeological section. And the way that microstratigraphy works is that you take a block of the section, you wrap it very carefully in plaster, and then you transport it to wherever you're going. You impregnate that block with resin, um, and then you cut it up into pieces and make those pieces very, very thin so that you can look at them under a microscope. And what you can see when you look at the... So is It's that simple. Yep. Uh, look, if this idiot can do it, <laughs> and by this, I mean me. You not, did this? I have done... You impregnated it with resin? No, not the Wunderwerk material, but I have done this. I've made thin sections in the field? before. In the field or in the lab? Is this when you were doing lab management? Uh, no, this was, this was... I was just helping Paul. I worked with Paul at La Ferrisi. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was very lucky in my... In the yeah. faculty that was there when I was there. Um, so, but what you can see in these images are the tiny flecks of ash. So the black dots, yes, oh, are ash. Yes. And you can see like the individual layers of sediments. You can see amber, do you see on in the image that's labeled A, there is sort of yeah. beige and then interspersed with red. Yeah. So the beige is um, ash, like solidified mm -hmm. ash, mm -hmm. and the red mm -hmm. is rubified sediment. So that's what happens, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but that's what happens when sediments get heated is that they turn color. So you have layers of ash and little flecks of burned, I don't know what that is, bone or, or something. Um, and that's that's what a hearth looks like, even yeah. if that hearth is a million years old and, and has been sort of dispersed over time. I have, I have excavated a hearth. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about things that archaeologists can use to say, ah, there was fire here. Um, apart from finding burned stuff, because you're not always oh, that lucky. I was... <laughs> Is it that? <laughs> I mean, yes, I like... that's a huge plus. <laughs> like if you find an in-situ clump of like charred things yeah. and burned bone and whatever, great. But sometimes you don't. And so someone else I worked with along who, who was a student of Paul's, um, and who is now a researcher at the University of Faro, Portugal, uh, Vera Aldeish, oh. who did this experimental research in 2017, but this is still what she studies. Like as of a couple of weeks ago, she was tweeting about doing experiments with sediment that had permafrost, like seeing how fire affected permafrost. Oh, wow. In Portugal in April. So I... I was confused, but I trust her. She has a paper um, in one of the University of Chicago Press's journals that's a great summary of proxies for fire, but also talks about the difficulties of recognizing fire in paleo contexts. In current anthropology. Yeah. Thank you. Quote, the degree to which a surface fire affects the surrounding sediments and artifacts depends mainly on two variables temperatures reached during combustion, and, most importantly, the distance to the fire feature itself. 
Temperatures within the limits of a fire rise substantially during initial combustion with all types of fuels. So like when you light something on fire, it gets really hot really fast. <laughs> Imagine. Our experiments show that temperatures drop dramatically outside the fireplace limits, and this is true for both the surf surface immediately adjacent to it and laterally buried deposits, so around it, not buried super deep, but covered and around the fire. Um, when we were, Vera was at La Pharisee as well, and so she and Paul were doing these burning experiments in like little boxes. It's very interesting, and they had thermometers hmm. in them, and they were like testing where the temperature spiked and how deep the temperature went underground. It's very cool. It's fun to watch. You were doing, you were doing this at like on site. Sorry, no, at the where we were staying. They were, but I'm, but still, like you were doing it in the field, like mm -hmm. while you were, huh? Yeah, like safely. No, I'm just like just doing some casual data collection on the side. I wasn't doing it. Vera was doing it. I helped a little. Um, other I'm other sure you were a good helper. Yeah, I'm a good helper. Other experimental work has shown that, as expected, substantial thermal alteration is visible in artifacts directly added into an active fire. Yep. While those positioned immediately outside the fire's limits remain largely unaffected. End quote. So. Artifacts that can show traces of being affected by fire include pot-lidded lithics. This is one of my favorite things that happen. Um, so if you have a stone tool, um, or even just not even a, a formal tool, just like a chunk of chert or, or silcrete or something, um, and you heat it hot enough in the middle of a fire, often I, it's because of the structure of the stone. I don't really know like molecularly what's going on, but mm -hmm. a little circular piece like a little divot just pops up off of the stone um and you get this very distinctive sometimes you can even find the the, the piece that popped off piece yeah and um it's very distinctive so if you if you google pot lidded lithics um you'll see what i mean um and so it really depends on like how much a fire alters what's around it and in it really depends mostly on how big or hot was the fire how long did it burn and how hot did it burn throughout and how deep underneath it were any other artifacts like lithics or bone? Because if they're deep enough, mm. they won't be altered because they're insulated by the ground. But if they're just under the surface of the fire, chances are they will look a little bit different. And yet another thing that makes this complicated is that people clean out their hearths sometimes. So signals yeah. of fire can be reworked and redistributed around a site. And I believe that was the case in Wunderwerk where it was, there weren't obvious hearths, but rather it was, um, I think I might be confusing this with a different site, Sabudu, but um, I think it was that they were burning like mats of grass and rushes, like they were cleaning oh, yeah. out yeah. their sleeping areas and then, kind of sweeping it away. So it wasn't that there was a clear fireplace that, that um, Francesco and Paul found that were just like, ah, found it. No, they had to look on the micro scale to see what had been cleared away after stuff was burned. And so when you talk about how long did it burn, are we talking like, like the difference it, between 20 minutes and an hour or like mm, weeks, months? They did sort of overnight. test that. Yeah, they did like test that. that. Uh-huh. And it, it, well, they didn't, didn't test years but um i don't know what like the the short limit is like i don't know how 
short a fire you could have before sediments get altered or before, you know, mm-hmm. before there's significant change. But yeah, so are you keeping the fire going constantly and banking it at night? Or is this just like, we need to burn some stuff. Let's do a bit of a bonfire. Um, could you explain what banking is? Yeah, in this okay, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, banking is when you go to the ATM. Um, I know. No. I also could use somebody explaining that to me. I can't do that. Um, I know. <laughs> when you have like a campfire and you don't want to extinguish it, but you do want to not catch fire in your sleep, you mm-hmm. um, you take something like chunks of sod or moss, something that is an insulator but also is damp and will not itself catch fire and you very carefully place that around the embers of your fire um, so that there's still a little bit of airflow but so your fire won't get uh, suffocated out but it also will just kind of smolder all night and in the morning you take off the stuff that you put around it and you add some new fuel and you got a fire again okay oh wow okay i never knew that that's what that was called i was sort of Mm-hmm. vaguely familiar with the concept but yeah, um, it's called banking okay. your fire banking your fire okay so that was when fire and why fire and the who fire is is hominins um and the what fire is all the stuff that we just talked about the fire is used for so um i think that leaves how fire so how fire? Okay, so pretty sure ancient hominins didn't have like Bic lighters or matches 80,000 years ago. They didn't have correct. like the tasers that like... Oh, yeah, the, <laughs> the taser lighters. Those are pretty cool. Yeah. Though. Um, so, um, Anna, I would like for you to explain to me... Oh, no, you already did. I have to read it. Uh, ways that we can make fire. So this, so I'm going to now read what Anna has written for me about how fire. Um, so this is separate from curating fire because that's when you put like a little label next to it. It says fire. Yes. <laughs> but uh, no, no, that's so keeping but, some keeping the embers going is curating. So fire. curating, banking the fire. Okay. And, and sort of keeping it fed and. Mm-hmm. Like not like a raging, mm-hmm. but like a teen, you have to keep it fed, not raging. Gotta curate, and <laughs> gotta curate that teen. Um, but okay, all these methods do sound kind of like a pain, total pain to do. But so once you make it, you gotta kind of keep it going as long. Yeah, as Yeah, unless it's just like oh, I'm here for one night. I don't want to be cold. Whatever. Yeah, but. And I say um, that as so, a very like external person. Like it seems like a pain in the butt to me, a person who doesn't have to make fire. By rubbing two sticks together. For someone who does it all the time, probably much easier. Yeah. But also um, it might be if they're challenging conditions Mm -hmm. or it's hard to spark something or it's hard to find Mm -hmm. dry things, you know, like the sort of necessary conditions, you, it would make sense that once you've got it going, you want to keep it going. Oh yeah. So the first one is strike a light. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's using flint struck against steel pyrites to make sparks. Mm-hmm. And using those sparks um, to set tinder on fire. Can you tell me what a steel pyrite is? Yeah, it's a... Yar. I don't know why... I, let me back that up. Steel does, is not naturally occurring. Okay. I'm so sorry. Great. I was... My brain went... <laughs> was my brain like, went flint and steel. How does that work? Flint and steel. No, so iron pyrite. So yeah. that's fool's gold. So yeah. that's... Sorry. That's yes. That's what it that is. is. A, okay, it is great. A, <laughs> a mineral a, form of iron that <laughs> when struck with flint sparks. Okay. Start the first one <laughs> is strike a light, 
which is using flint struck against iron pyrites to make sparks. So iron pyrite is fool's gold. If you've been to any science center, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you may have bought a tiny piece of it from the gift shop at some point. Um, So there was scant evidence for this, but also researchers weren't really looking for it. But in 2013, 2014, researcher Andy Sorensen did a series of experiments trying to replicate microware traces from MTA-style hand axes from Neanderthal context. So MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority of New York. Um, So MTA in this case stands for um, Mousterian of... Acheulean tradition. Mousterian of Acheulean tradition. Um. But the term but, comes from the French, so it's the the letters are in a different order. What's Mousterian of Acheulean. So the Mousterian is a Neanderthal specific tool technology. Okay. Um, related to the longer tradition. So it's basically the Acheulean was pre-Neanderthal. So okay. this is like the Neanderthal version of this particular Acheulean tradition. Okay. It's basically hand axes, those like real okay. classic Neanderthal hand axes. That's what I want okay. you to picture. Great. I am. I'm rotating one in my mind now. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so it's associated with Neanderthals specifically and especially later populations of Neanderthals in Europe. Sorensen did a number of experiments striking non-archaeological <laughs> flint hand axes against pyrites and then, using a microscope, compared the traces left by the pyrite to the traces on the archaeological specimens. To quote Sorensen, quote, The experimental traces produced during fire making corresponded most closely to those we observed on the archaeological tools, demonstrating for the first time that fire making was an activity regularly performed by later Neanderthals. Yeah. So there was Was the emphasis there his or yours? His. Okay. Yeah. So late. So they figured it out during their. So it would seem. Their time. Yeah. And and what he means by regularly performed, like. Striking a pyrite against flint once or twice doesn't really leave much of a trace, but if you do it over time, a little bit of a residue builds up um, because okay. the, the pyrite essentially kind of scrapes off on the onto the flint. There were archaeological tools that seemed to have enough residue that would suggest that this was something that happened pretty frequently. And okay. if you, uh, the link will be and in that the show that notes. was what this one was for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is your stri- this is my striker. Well, yeah, and there, I, I'm sure there smusher. were. Um, people who sort of just used whatever was to hand and expedient. And so that's, you wouldn't really see traces of that, but some people clearly. Like a Leatherman, like a multi-tool? <laughs> no, just, just um, like maybe you kept the pyrite handy, but Flint is around. So you just, uh. um, and so the, this blog post, um, it's like nature journals, public facing blog post where, where researchers oh, write okay. about, like for the public, which is great. Like yeah. I, very commendable. Um, it also includes some video of Andy Sorensen um, striking pyrites against Flint. So you can actually see the like little see the sparks? fountain of sparks that comes oh, off. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's cool. Cool, cool. Um, so there's another component to this that is less clear cut. Um, and that's the possible use of manganese as a fire starter or accelerant. Mm-hmm. Uh, manganese oxide is a black pigment that Neanderthals are thought to have used for the creation of art or body decoration or other kinds of symbolic expression. Um, but another property of manganese is that if you add it to the fuel you're using for your fire, it lowers the temperature at which wood ignites. 
So if you had manganese shavings, am I saying that right? You are. I've never said it before. Do okay. you want it to be manganese? Manganese. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds delicious, but no, it's manganese. Um, uh, shavings sprinkled over your tender and you strike, you struck sparks onto it, you would, it would take less effort for that tender to catch fire. That said, there's not a lot of other evidence for this behavior at Neanderthal sites. And while we know that some populations definitely used fire, we don't know exactly we yeah, we don't know exactly how they did it. Um, there's still a lot of debate about this specific set of experiments and the subsequent publication about them. So we'll just leave that idea as a cool or yeah, a cooler hmm. uh, possibility for now. Yeah, um, so that it's a really cool paper, but it came out and then there was a lot of sort of immediate pushback about it. And I'm no longer like as immersed in the literature as I was at that point. Mm -hmm. So I can't and honestly didn't want to speak to that. So okay. it's just that's why it stops yeah. there. Okay, great. So another option for how fire mm -hmm. is friction methods. Um, this is this this can be done by rubbing two sticks of hardwood together along with tender and tender is is like small like, bits of very flammable material that so like the the dryer lint mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. put in with okay great um, clean your dryer um, traps everybody yeah um, okay so where you you um, rub those two sticks of hardwood together over your dryer lint. Or your moss, or your you there's know, a special kind of mushroom whatever. that that's good for it, like little oh, little oh. flakes of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the heat generated by that friction of rubbing those two hardwood sticks together ignites the temp the tinder. So it's very hard to do by hand if you are an experienced person like Anna. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some variations that make it a bit less work. Yeah. So the, the first taser. The taser lighter. Well, the first of these is the fire plow. Uh, oh. So uh, we, I have YouTube links for each of these so you can watch someone do it, but I will try to describe it to you. Um, so you've got a little stick of hardwood and uh -huh. then you've got a larger piece, sort of a, a platform oh, of softer wood. Oh. Softer wood. And that, that softer wood has a bit of a groove cut into it. And so... The small hardwood stick is rubbed really quickly against that groove. And as you do that, the wood, the, the actual platform, sheds tiny shavings that gradually heat up with the friction and eventually ignite or become this kind of smoldering little coal that you can then tip into a little sort of nest of dry grass or something to get your fire so it's started. Like BYO tender? You're like producing the tinder. Well, like you're through producing the, the, the coal that sets the tinder on fire. So you, so like you have to have something ready to catch that smoldering kind of wood powder. Okay. Uh, so the yeah, the powder itself gets okay. really, really, really hot, and you have like a, a very small window of time to just kind of go boop into something very flammable. Wow. <laughs> and then and then that gets a flame started, and then you can, so, then you can okay. like add sticks and stuff. Yeah. Great. Um, so you don't want to do this on the hood of, on like the back of your Tesla. Don't. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Is your Tesla made of wood? No, I'm saying something extremely flammable. Oh, if yeah, you don't. Have, if you're yeah. using your little softwood platform. Yeah, no, don't do that. Um, the video that I found of the guy doing this is weirdly soothing. It's like oh. survivalist ASMR. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed it. 
There's also, uh, you can use a fire bow. Um, the bow in general, bow used as drill, is is a pretty universal tool kind of across hunter-gatherer groups. I re- already regret saying the word universal, but it's it's a way that people have made drilling easier it's for a long time instead of just going ubiquitous. by hand. <laughs> so it's the same basic premise. Rub wood together, shavings form, catch fire. But the stick and the platform piece of wood are held perpendicular to one another. And Mm -hmm. then the string of a small bow is wound around the stick. The bow is held parallel to the ground and moved side to side. So you've got something holding the stick in place under your hand, because otherwise you will drill a hole in your your hand. Yeah, not great. Um, And so the stick rotates really, really quickly in a little groove in the platform. And the same thing happens. It kind of produces this very fine wood dust that is heated by friction. And that becomes a little coal that you tip into your uh, pile of tinder. And there's a video that I found from Donnie Dust, who listeners of Life and Ruins podcast might recognize. He's been a guest and uh, he's sort of a, a real life Neanderthal. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. He just like does a lot of Paleolithic stuff. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So you can watch him uh, do a very quick, efficient little bow drill fire uh, on the YouTubes. So these are the most common ways that modern hunter-gatherer groups make fire today, like the Hadza use use bow drills uh, to make fire, uh, when they make it with traditional methods. So, like, I'm not saying they don't have matches, right? Yeah, they've got big lighters. Yeah. And they're like, they, whatever. Yeah. But when tourists come. Yeah, pretty much. Like, and they're like, we're going to showcase, like, traditional methods. Yeah. And but, everyone says, ah. Ah, fire. <laughs> um, yeah. Man, that's another thing altogether. But with that, I think we should wrap up this episode with a little recap because there are so, 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 so many other things to talk about that involve fire. Ceramics, fire Mm -hmm. is something that both destroys and preserves like those cuneiform Cuneiform tablets. tablets, That That nobody meant to use. They probably would have like ground them up and made... Mm -hmm new tablets no but they burned later and then they were like ah oh, so much more work now like, oh, we'll just now everybody knows that i sold bad ingots God. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know had it. he had it coming um <laughs> we've got the ritual uses of fire cremations yeah. and on and on and on but that is for another time so okay. to recap hominins have used fire for a very long time maybe as long as one million years maybe more yeah. but that doesn't mean they were making fire because fire can occur naturally. Yeah. The use of fire may have contributed to our big brain evolution, and it definitely contributed to the quality of our diet. Once people figured out how to make fire and or take it with them, it opened up many more technologies and other advantages. So like back to the the example of the uh, pitch, the heated adhesive, right? So like mm-hmm. without fire, you can't make something like that, which means that you can't stick things to other things with it which means that you can't really make the the composite tools that neanderthals were making with it i guess the uh not to complicate things but is that something that could be done in um like geothermal kind of environments i don't are know. you familiar with any studies of like cooking and like very cooking, high yes. cooking yes like, I've, I've come like across in, that but but i don't know about sort of using that as a tool i'm sure people did but I don't know when. Just being like, okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Archaeologists can use many different clues or proxies to look for fire in the archaeological record. These include, but are not limited to, burned animal or plant remains, ash, microscopic carbonized material, so like little burn flakes, altered rocks and sediments, so either visually or compositionally altered. So you may not be able to see it with the naked eye, but um, like with the the AI study, um, there are ways to pick it up with instruments more sensitive than our eyeballs. Um, And then also heat-altered stone tools. Please, everyone, go look at pot-lidded lithics. They're just cute. It's just cute. Um, (laughs) It's like, I'm done. Yeah, it's like popcorn. The forbidden popcorn. Um, And with that, we will bank the coals of this episode Mm -hmm. and come back to you very soon with more new content. And uh, as always, you can find us on social media and wherever you listen to podcasts. You're already doing it. You did it. Yeah. Thanks. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. Leave reviews, please. We made one Graham Hancock fan mad. (laughs) And so I'm hoping I've been checking our reviews just like hopefully there aren't just like a bunch of that guy, that one guy. Yeah. Well, no, just like a bunch of spam bad reviews but so far so good so good reviews only please um and thank you so much for listening and it does help that we didn't really talk about it yeah i know you know i know um he doesn't need us to yeah all right thanks everybody yeah we love you thank you you so much thanks for keeping the home fires burning uh yeah Mm -hmm. all right take care we love you goodbye goodbye Mm -hmm.